0: Well, good morning again, and, you know, we find ourselves not only in, on a Mother's Day, which, of course, is a day worthy of celebration, and I hope we will celebrate our mothers, but we also come across this week, even, that is Ascension Week uh, in the church calendar, and, of course, we began a series last week on Ascension. We focus there on John's Gospel, and especially this very unique sense in which there would be a continued and mystical presence of Christ during his Ascension ministry by the Holy Spirit through the church. The church became the very central aspect of that temple presence, a mystical or even sacramental presence that, that carries with it a huge amount of significance. Well, this week, what I'd like to do is part two of our Ascension series and really focus on the Holy Spirit. Now, let's just be honest There is a lot of confusion about the Holy Spirit. Uh, This very vital aspect of the ascension ministry of Christ throughout the New Testament is going to focus upon Christ comes to us at Pentecost, and it's Christ who's coming to us, according to Peter, but in the mystery of his union with the Holy Spirit. Now, the confusion is legion. One thinks, of course, of the confusions where, on the one hand, there's a kind of of uh, privatization of the Holy Spirit. Um, It's interesting that the confusion, by the way, let me say this before I keep going. The confusion that I see is, if you really were to analyze this, it really is a confusion that goes in one of two directions, both of which are equally in compromise or or being syncretized to modern worldviews. So, for instance, on one side is what I call the privatization of the Holy Spirit. Are people who really believe in the power and the coming of the Holy Spirit, who expect there to be a supernaturalness to the Christian life. And, and they would be right about that, but then would turn to the Scripture and see it in very and deeply privatized or individualistic terms. The Lord told me. The Lord showed me. The Lord spoke to me. The Holy Spirit led me. You know, on it goes. Me, me, me. Expectations of power for personal gain. The Holy Spirit will bless you individually with health and wealth, perhaps. The Holy Spirit will take suffering away from you, and on it goes. Expectations of signs and wonders. That would be the privatization of the Holy Spirit, which is suspiciously, incredibly modernistic. If you were to compare that to a pre-modern worldview, and as we'll see in Scripture... And so I think there's been a lot of uh, excesses, but, not, but excesses actually isn't the real problem. It's the way in which that position has so reduced the Holy Spirit as if to be a private temple of God. Now, on the other hand, is you could come up with many terms, but it's, it's very uh, uh, you know, modernistic, but I would say it's the secularization of the Holy Spirit. It's where we neuter the spirit of of his real being and supernaturalness as effectively at work in the life of our world today. It's the conventionalization, if you will, the bureaucratization, if you will, the organization, if you will, by bureaucratization I mean that, where somehow we begin to confuse the Holy Spirit with just worldly wisdom. And we just assume that the Holy Spirit's there. This position is probably more the position of your traditional church versus, say, your charismatic-leaning church. Equally as modernistic. And I will say equally as fundamentally unbiblical, although both have a core of truth. On this side, you remember my hands now. I've been doing this all day. You remember your this with us? On the conventional secular of the whole secularization of the Holy Spirit sides, uh, there's a core of truth that the Holy Spirit is at work by virtue of his activity and providence. This doctrine of providence. Aspects of life that are not necessarily supernatural, but, but nonetheless of God and his directing all things whatsoever that comes to pass, and therefore a kind of co- conventional wisdom and a conventional secular way of thinking of the Holy Spirit. This side rightly understands the Holy Spirit as revelatory and illuminatory, as in there's a real active and real wisdom that comes not from conventional wisdom, not from the worldly wise that would then credential you for uh, discerning the Lord's will, for instance. And so if what you could see is that there's this confusion out there, what I wouldn't want you, though, to see is that, therefore, the Holy Spirit is some kind of, uh, I don't know, that's the sort of thing you do when you were young and you became a Christian. But we should all grow out of that kind of a doctrine. Absolutely not. And so as we turn to this idea of the Holy Spirit as a vital aspect, if you will, or focal point of Christ's ascension ministry, we're going to part two and we're going to focus on the book of Acts eventually. But it's important that I get you there By showing you the Holy Spirit through all of redemptive history. Because that's what's going to cut through the problems either left or right. That's what's going to help us discern, oh, the access is here or the access is here. Or the minimization here and the minimization here. Most importantly, it's going to direct us in how to interpret the New Testament, especially Luke's second gospel. Remember, his first gospel is called the Gospel of Luke. His second gospel is called the Acts of the Apostles, both the Acts of Christ, as vis-a-vis his incarnational ministry, part one, and his ascension ministry, part two, as Peter will explain in chapter two of Acts. But here's what I don't want you to take away from this. Whatever else you think, you cannot marginalize the Holy Spirit in your spirituality. I mean, it's everywhere in Acts, this idea of being spirit-filled. And we're exhorted to be spirit-filled in Ephesians. In Acts 4, we hear how when they were praying, the place in which they were gathered together were shaken, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit, which resulted in their speaking the word of God with boldness. There's a characteristic. Acts 9. We hear how Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight. And he was filled with the Holy Spirit, expecting real and powerful presence, affecting history. And it did, of course, for Paul. We see in Acts 13, and the disciples were told were filled filled with the joy of the Holy Spirit. There is something about the perspective, the attitude, the expectations that come with this age of the ascension ministry, coupled with what Jesus promised in John, with the greater things. Oh, it would be a grave mistake to think of this age between his resurrection and his coming again as the parenthesis era. Or the just hunker down error. Hold your breath error, Fortress yourself era. Wait era. Absolutely not. If you read the book of Acts and then you go into the epistles as it explains that, there's nothing except a bold expectation of greater things to come. When we think about the future. The future that has already begun now. And so in Ephesians 5, 18, perhaps reminding us of this scene in Acts 2, if you're familiar, where where the people were filled with the Spirit and those who were secular thought that they were drunk with wine, it's interesting that Paul picks up maybe with having been told about that, says, do not get drunk with wine. In other words, that's not real Christianity, conventional, secular, i.e. the kind that relies on things that we can control. See, I think there's much more to this don't get drunk with wine than a little moralistic platitude. I mean, this is about how do you feel good? Do we rely on conventional wisdom and means? Or is there something deeper and more eternal? He says, do not get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. Are you, Experiencing the spirit filled life. And right there, you're off to the races, left or right. Hold your horses. Let's go to the scripture. Would you pray with me? So, Father, we pray that you would come now in the power and the wisdom of the Holy Spirit, which is just to say, Come, Lord Jesus, meet with your people. Dare us, challenge us, prod us, provoke us, give us the place in our hearts to be open to this message. We pray in Christ's name, amen. It begins, yes, it does begin, the Holy Spirit begins with Genesis. The earth was filled and was without form, and it was void. These words in redemptive history are always associated not just with a philosophical or cosmological description that we often would assign to it. These are words that will describe a place that is about to be judged, that is about to be saved as through the judgment of God, perhaps. That's crucial. And so this earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. That's the second verse of our Bible. A history begins... A history that's incredibly profound. I, I had the opportunity Friday after our staff party to go outside and, and turn on all, uh, I think it's called All Sons and Daughters, the, the, the Christian band. They've done something pretty special. They did a, a European tour and they looked at all the great, you know, they went and visited the places of the various saints and, and uh, some of the apostles and, and, then, and then they would from that write a song. And one of the songs that they wrote that's on that album, I encourage you to go home, and it's the kind of thing you just need to, to be alone, maybe. Uh, it's, not the kind of, it's not a background music, but just to sit around and listen to the way it's introduced. They do a really wonderful introduction there. But here's how the song goes. On light appeared, oh, light appeared from nothing, oh, light appeared from nothing, with the spirit brooding over the water. Heaven meets earth. Somebody did some good exegesis for him because that is exactly the word here, hovering. It's brooding. It's it's like a great eagle hovering over something like that. And they did some really amazing exegesis because it takes a pretty good biblical theologian to have worked through the book of Genesis to understand that what's being described here is the Shekinah glory of the temple come from heaven to earth. That what we read about is not these ridiculous modern science-driven questions of Genesis, questions that were unheard of and unthinkable in this book, but that something was happening here, just absolutely cataclysmic that there is a reality, a heavenly reality, a heavenly paradigm and pattern and temple and presence that was now coming down to earth, which would begin the great prayer that we talked about last week, you know, a prayer that God would come and that he would build his kingdom where? On earth as it is in heaven. That is a prayer that is consistent with the Old and New Testament. I don't know where they got their theology and exegesis, but good for them. They understood rightly what the first lines of a song about creation should say. And from there, of course, came the morning. From night then came the morning. There was sky in the middle of the water. Heaven meets earth. The sun revealed your beauty. The sun revealed your beauty. Every mountain bowing down before you heaven meets earth and creation sings your glory and praise. We now have a temple. He then begins to sing that classic hymn, holy, holy, holy. Lord God Almighty. I can't emphasize the power of this passage that we have neutered in all our tiny, baby controversies. But that's how we begin the creation of the cosmos as accomplished by the Spirit of God hovering over the face of the waters. Meredith Klein, trying to reach into the abyss of his brain to figure out how to describe this, comes up with a hyphenated word, the glory spirit. And about this glory spirit of Genesis 1-2, he describes how it, comes, it represents the coming forth of the Lord of glory out of an invisible temple into a special earth temple to reveal himself into earth history as the Alpha and the Omega. Not surprisingly, what happens next is we hear again this ruach, the, the Hebrew word for spirit, and it shows up in the investiture of Adam and Eve as to become priest in the image of God. That is a priestly event there. It's not a cosmological event. It's not even a, oh, I don't know, biological. Yes, anthropology, man and woman are spirit and flesh, but what's happening there, it just totally transcends that debate. It is the investiture of Adam and Eve to be the priest, the the royal priesthood of of temple creation itself. And that's where you see the Spirit, secondly. Then, as the temple of creation is defined by the presence of God, by the Holy Spirit, in the midst of them, we hear how the Lord, even when Adam and Eve had rejected God, you remember, it's this Ruach again, this Spirit of God, that is in the midst of them. Oh, some of these English translations are horrific. Horrific like he's taking a stroll in a garden. It's the coming of the judgment of God into temple creation. To be sure, we begin on earth as it is in heaven pattern that will determine then the meaning, everything about the Holy Spirit. This pattern that will pick up in Revelations, and I mean, that will end and regu- pick up in Genesis and end in Revelations. For, you know how this story is going to end, right? You remember that. It's going to end with a, re, a reformulation of what we began with and the reality of redemption this time, not towards judgment. And I heard a loud voice from the, soul, uh, the throne saying, that's the loud voice that the Spirit invoked upon Adam and Eve, remember. Behold, the tabernacle of God is with humanity and he will tabernacle with them. And they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. And this is said right after the image of Christ coming to earth. Not to take us up to heaven. No, it's Christ coming to earth, bringing heaven with him to earth. That forever will now be what it was meant to be all along, the temple creation. Now, this is really important because this overshadowing glory was present then at the beginning, it's present at the end, and everything in between is, is now going to be carefully choreographed so that we understand the Holy Spirit to be the spirit of temple formation by new creation events. You think, oh, come on, man, this is, this is, wh- I mean, this is where our secular minds just get cynical, right? I do. Oh, you, you're just making this stuff up. You're not going to believe if we would take the time, and I've tried to do it for you, and I'm going to reduce it very carefully. So just sit back, take a breath, because this isn't going to be immediately gratifying to you. But it's going to speak volumes. And I'm going to do it very briefly. But I want you to just sit back and listen to the story of your Bible. You've already been listening to it. So what's going to happen here? This overshadowing glory that was present at the beginning of the first creation, we are going to discover over and over again, showing up, and each time, carefully worded, so that you would understand that it is a new creation event at the redemption of temple earth. So for instance, the new creation event of Noah's flood, and especially the glory spirit of God within the ark of God as describing God's temple presence there. Genesis 7, and they went into the ark with Noah in which there was the spirit of God. And he noticed especially what happens next is a description of the the temple. And if you're really a kind of mathematical, you know, anal kind of person, which we need to read the Bible... They would recognize that all these dimensions are perfectly the same as the dimensions of the temple of God. Genesis 8-1 then, after they've entered into the spirit of God, the spirit we find again. And oh, what is he doing? What do you think? Just what do you expect now? That's right. A repeat of the language of verse 2 of Genesis. The exact same image, the spirit hovering over the waters, which is going to bring salvation to the covenant people and damnation to those who are under his judgment. It's a powerful moment, a recreation event. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark, and God made a wind, a ruach hover over the earth, and the waters subsided, we're told. The new creation event, part three, the Exodus. Exodus episode, Exodus, Exodus 14, 21, and more poetically, describes the, quote, spirit of God that blows upon the waters in Exodus fifteen eight and then verse 10. And it sounds almost exactly like the words that are used in Acts chapter 2. And the spirit that blows over the earth. Exodus 14. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong eastward ruach. Now, why eastward? Did you get that? Eastward? I mean, why the heck did the Bible bother with telling you what direction it came from? Because that means it came from the temple. The the image of the eastern door. Very carefully, always, when you see the word east... As a descriptive of a place on earth, you're almost certain that it is descriptive of of representing the temple presence. They are, in Ezekiel, kicked out of the east door, you remember. It was from out of the east of Eden that they were kicked out because that was the door into the Eden temple. You just can't make this stuff up. Exodus 15, then you blew with your spirit. The sea then covered over them, the Egyptians, and they sank like lead in the mighty waters. There is just no doubt that there's an intentionality in the literary connection you see between Exodus as a now third creation event. Thus establishing a kind of recreation aspect of what salvation is means and how it will be defined moving forward as well. It's interesting that in Deuteronomy 32, as he's, as he's describing the Exodus, he describes the situation with those two words, tahu and bohu in the Hebrew, which is and void and, and uh, what, what was it, void and yeah, something. But the same two words are descriptive of the situation that invoked God's presence into salvation, like a, into a cold, he, he called it a howling wilderness. How it is that God then encircled him and he instructed him and he kept him at the apple of his eye as an, ap, as an eagle stirs up its nest, hovering over its young, spreading out its wings, taking them up, carrying them up into his rings. This word hover that is used in Deuteronomy to describe activity of God, of course, is that word that described the Holy Spirit. It's, it's Sinai, at Noah's flood, at creation. This glory spirit, of course, we discern en route to the holy mountain. In Exodus 13, it was a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night that was associated with the hovering of the Holy Spirit where great salvific events were to happen. It's invoked again, of course, as they go through the wilderness with the what? How is it associated? With the tabernacle. It wasn't a hovering spirit over an individual man. It's not this private eye spirit. It's always the spirit associated with the temple of God. As summarized in 4034, then the cloud covered the tabernacle of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. You heard Isaiah 53, 63 describing creation, didn't you? And these great epical moments in Moses' day. How it's described that where is he who put in the midst of them the Holy Spirit? And then he talks about the dividing of the waters and the leading of his people to salvation for the sake of his glorious name. Psalm 78, he built his sanctuary. Now listen to this. This is commentary in the songs. He built his sanctuary like the high heavens, like the earth, which he has founded forever. His sanctuary on earth. Temple creation. His sanctuary now in the midst of earth, in process to saving the whole earth again, in every temple presence of God. Isaiah 42 now anticipates this story as it will continue in what he describes as a new covenant. I have put my spirit upon him. Who? He's talking about Jesus. Thus says the Lord God, who will create the heavens and stretch them out, who spread forth the earth, and that was come from it. Do you see how Isaiah is relating the ministry of the Messiah to a new creation from heaven to earth, exactly like we've been hearing? Oh, man, this is where I want to slow down even more, but I think I'm going to exasperate you, so I'm going to have to stop there. Are you convinced, though? Can you just say you're convinced now that the Holy Spirit, number one, was in the Old Testament? (laughs) Hope you know that. Two, that the Holy Spirit was a massive event of salvation defined as heaven to earth accomplished through the organization or accomplishment or formation of a temple. Temple Eden, Temple Fallen, subsequent redemptive temples, awaiting the ultimate redemptive temple, Jesus Christ. And oh, just guess what Jesus is going to do? You saw it last week in John, right? How he has to go to the Father, that he might send the Holy Spirit, that he might temple among us. And then therefore that he's going to build a great house of the Lord where there would be many rooms a house of the Lord that would go through all the nations, where he promised in Matthew, and lo, I am with you until the end of the earth. And how did you describe that, that incredible kingdom of God in, 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 in uh, Matthew? I'm getting a but I just got to roll with this. Matthew 16 binding on earth what is bound in heaven, loosing on earth what is loosed in heaven. This, my church, against which not even the gates of hell can prevail. People, do you believe that about the church? What if you believe that, really? What if you believe that? That the Holy Spirit is given unto the church. This advocate that would be Christ, the witness of Christ, the presence of witness to Christ, in, with, and through the house of many rooms, rooms that are of every nation, every culture. It's just incredible. It's just incredible. And this is the greater works that he speaks of. Just as a father has sent me, he gave us the commission last week, remember? So I am sending you. It just as so clause begs, well, how did you send Christ? He sent him as a temple. The word becomes flesh and templed among us. Throughout the Gospel of John, you remember that, that John focuses everything on the templeness of Jesus. All of his I am statements are spoken in temple ceremonies. He speaks of three days, this, the temple will be destroyed, but in three days it will be raised up again, in John 3. John 3, and right after that, oh yeah, did he? you remember what he talked about? He talked about the Holy Spirit to Nicodemus, how we must be born again to be filled into this temple that's going to be raised up. It's an amazing association here, that these little iso-jesuses from modernity, left or right, have... Seemingly missed. And so here we have, at the end of John, this incredible temple worship service. Temple benediction, peace be with you. Temple commission, as the Father sent me, so I send you. Temple power, and when he had said this, he breathed on them. That sound familiar? A re atoming the church? A re-priestliness of the church? This is where I'd go if I were talking about the priesthood of all believers. And by the way, it's not you, an individual priest, it's the corporate priesthood, the royal priesthood that Peter talks about, that is the corporate church together, organically one, in the mystery of our communion by the Spirit with one another. That's what he's talking about in John 17, make them one as I am one with you, you and me, and all that kind of stuff. And then there's this temple absolution, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withholding. There, you know, the Pharisees got all peeved. I was going to say something else. Peeved with Christ because, you know, he had the audacity not to raise somebody from the dead. No, that, that's, that's Mickey Mouse compared to what Jesus did. He had the audacity to forgive sins. He had the audacity to be God and forgive sins. Here it's given to the church. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld them. There's a mystery. We recognize now in this now and not yet age, the church is fallible. It's not perfect, but its ontological character, excuse me with that word, its nature is to be the presence of Christ forgiving sins. That's the power given to this church. Only we believe it. You know, Calvin was really going into this, and um, he, like many Orthodox theologians, wanted to be very careful about how this presence that's in, with, and through the church is described. He wanted to be careful to distinguish our union with Christ by the Holy Spirit, not as a forensic union, which means the kind of union that, that justifies us, that being reserved to our having faith by grace, but faith alone in the finished, accomplished, incarnational work of Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago on the cross, vindicated by the, Holy, by, by the resurrection. That's how we are justified, which is how we're forgiven, right? We declare it as a church. But, but the power that enables us to believe we call effectual calling. The power that enables us to be sanctified and glorified and to persevere. Oh, that's a power that Calvin wants to identify then with the way in which we are united to Christ's flesh in heaven. He, he sees this resurrected Christ who then ascends into heaven is now glorified in heaven as a glorified flesh. The body is still with Christ now. In the mystical sense of that, okay, just don't go there right now. But in this bodily presence of Christ in heaven, there is a mystical union with the body of Christ on earth, wherein Paul argues in chapter 1 of Ephesians that you and I are enlivened by the body of Christ. That we are, to this church, is given what? Christ. Body. Who fills all in all. There's that Shekinah glory language hovering over and into the church. The church is defined as the body of Christ, even as Christ's body is in heaven. And the way he puts it is this, and I think I might have read it last week, but just in case, I'm going to read it slowly again, because this is going to be our turning point into Acts. We acknowledge that the flesh of Christ is life-giving, the flesh of Christ that is in heaven, not only because once in it our salvation was obtained, now that's justification, But because now we are being united to him in sacred union, it breathes life into us. You hear that word, breathe? He was not a dumb theologian. He had read his Bible carefully. He's in Genesis 2 right now. And we united to him in sacred union, it breathes life into us. Because being by the power of the Spirit engrafted into the body of Christ, we have a common life with him. For from the hidden fountain of divinity, life is, in a wonderful way, infused into the flesh of Christ, and thence flows from his flesh to our flesh. Christ is absent from us to the body, but his spirit, however dwelling in us, he is so lifts us to himself in heaven that he transfuses the life-giving vigor of his flesh into us as we grow by vital heat of the sun. I do believe I read that to you last week, but isn't that incredible? And so as we turn into Acts, we have to understand that the gift of the Spirit is nothing less than the gift of Christ himself. United to the Holy Spirit, the logos of creation that was the Holy Spirit breathing life into the world. There is a new creation event at Pentecost turning over to Acts and the filling of the Holy Spirit it's interesting that all four Gospels record this preparatory ministry of John the Baptist as pointing to Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, John one twenty that is, his incarnational ministry. But then they climax and focus on the fact that while John sent to baptize Christ with water, which means Christ, in solidarity with humanity, is repenting for us, as would ultimately be accomplished on the cross when he dies for our sins, that this whole thing, then, that Jesus, the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit one day, quote-unquote. Luke's gospel especially. At the end of Luke, the book of, uh, uh, he begins in chapter 24 with these instructions to the apostles. He tells them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds, we're told, to understand the scriptures. And then he said to them, This it is written, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed the name to all nations. Beginning from Jerusalem, you are witnesses of these things. And then he said this, So behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. Wait for it in the city, and you are clothed with power from on high. We know the promise of the Father earlier was about the promise of the Holy Spirit. The last words that he said practically. And so what do you think Acts does? It picks up with those words. And while they were staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. And he goes on and embellishes what Jesus had said to them that night. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. That's how Acts begins, waiting for the hovering of the Holy Spirit, the new creation of the world again in Christ. Concerning these greater things, these binding and loosings, everything we've said, here's the promise. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking up, he was lifted up and a cloud took them out of their sight. Acts recalls that conversation and that moment when Jesus ascended. And of course, what do we get? We get a book carefully, carefully written by Luke, which perfectly coincides with these three concentric circles of the recreation event of the Holy Spirit in the name of Christ throughout the world. Part one of Acts is Judea. It begins in cha- chapter two. It sets a pattern for successive Pentecosts. That is to say, there's not just one Pentecost, the one we think of as Acts two. Acts two is the paradigmatic Pentecost, if you will, the one that sets the pattern. This is what it will look like and should look like. But then it subsequently happens as to introduce Each of those three movements in mission. Remember chapter 8. You will receive power to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, in Samaria, the bigger circle, throughout the whole world, the whole world circle. So when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came, oh, guess where it came from? Is that just poetry? (laughs) Yep, that's right. It came from heaven. Here we go again. Back to Genesis. Back to Noah. Back to Exodus. Back to Jesus. Now in Acts. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. Where did we hear that before? Yep, Exodus, Noah, Genesis. And it filled the entire house. House, a temple place, even if in the upper room, where they were sitting, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And to demonstrate, they all began to demonstrate different languages, tongues, because it was for the whole world, remember? A sign. Again, from heaven to earth, a mighty wind hovering over the earth filling a house with the glory spirit of God. It's all there. And so we're told that being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this, that you yourselves yourselves are seeing and hearing. That's how Peter describes the event. And what did we see there? The formation of a temple. It says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayers. That's a temple. That's a church. Five marks right there. The locus of mission and mercy. Because what happens there is not just that they got together and huddled together. What? All the nations were there with them. It was the locus of mission, not the source. It was the presence of God unto salvation, not just a training seminary. kingdom that then radiated out from the church into the homes and neighborhoods into the world and it's a pattern that wants to be repeated first Judea Acts 2 then Samaria Acts 8 Paul in his missionary journey second or first second I think it is and then two to the ends of the earth that begins in chapter 16 verse 6 that's what we read today So turning now to the whole world, of which we are continuing, what's interesting here is that, as you'll see, in every one of these three parts of Acts, there is a summary at the end, and it's never a summary of individualized Christianity. It's never a summary of how individuals were Spirit-filled. In every one of those summaries, it's about the church flourishing, as if it's been accomplished. Phase one, temple formation. Phase two, temple formation phase three, you have the most concentrated instructions in the whole New Testament of things like ordination, things like what they should teach, you know, Paul giving himself, saying, you know, I've made every effort to teach you the whole counsel of God's word, admonishing the pastors to do the same. There's a a a great ordination ceremony. There's the organizations of churches three times. And it ends with the kingdom of God is going forth, i.e., you keep planting churches. That's the spirit-filled life. But it's corporate, communal. And so with that, I want to just leave us, because I know I've I've taken some time, but I'm going to tell you right now what we learn in chapter 16 about the spirit-filled life. Four things. You ready? Spirit-filled wisdom, spirit-filled power, spirit-filled community, spirit-filled suffering. Very briefly, if you remember the story, how it is that God did not allow them to preach the gospel there, but told them to preach the gospel over here. There was an enlightened wisdom And they went to a leading city, Philippi. Forbidden by the Holy Spirit. Two times. What does that mean? Often people, if you're on this side, you're going to interpret it that way. Oh, they just kind of did some statistical studies. If you're leaning on this side, you're going to think it's some privatized, personalized, revelatory event, God to, to Paul or something like that. No evidence of that anywhere. There's visions, not related to this particular decision. Before there was. Yes, Paul's in a foundationalist period where God is speaking to him in a unique way. But what's interesting here, and I think paradigmatic, is there's nothing here that would tell us how the Spirit changed their mind. So don't us do it too quickly either. And what he does, and what we would do is import our own spirituality. Oh, that's that experience that I have in my prayer closet. Okay, what we do know from Scripture and the New Testament is that the Holy Spirit is active in both Scripture and providence. I mean, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit, the Spirit whom he has given to us. The work of the Holy Spirit is revelatory, and the revelation has ceased, according to John, the end of the John's gospel, uh, letter. And therefore, we know that we have a sufficient amount of wisdom if we were just to be studied students of Scripture. Did you remember the Berean church that's in this phase? The description of the Berean church that's going to be right after this? How they set their minds to studying the Scriptures? A Spirit-filled Christian is someone who is willing to work hard at studying the Holy Scripture. Because that's the Holy Spirit's revelation. But also the Christian is someone who's willing to acknowledge that all things whatsoever that happen in my life are directed by God, by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is present in every car accident and every suffering and every celebration and every victory. Everything that happens to you is the Holy Spirit's ordained work, which means, this is the key, now I'm about to put these two together, you want to be a Spirit-filled Christian? You make it your ambition to bring the Word to God to bear upon every single minutiae situation in your life in a manner that you can discern what is a faithful response to it. Let me say it again. A spirit-filled Christian is someone who hungers and thirsts and reads the Scripture, who are the words of the Holy Spirit to you, to His church, and who is diligent at connecting the dots between that Scripture and the whole worldview and wisdom of that Scripture to every event of your life is to discern from the values of Scripture what is a faithful response to that event. Assuming that the event, if it's in your life and if you're a Christian, is for your salvation. You want power? Start treating every event like that. You want wisdom? Start treating every event like that. Bringing the Scriptures to bear. Man, if you don't think the scripture is relevant to what you're going to do tomorrow morning when you go to work, you got something coming. It's sufficient for everything you do. Don't compartmentalize your faith. Big time mistake of heresy number one of the Holy Spirit. Left, I'll call it. (laughs) Praise God for those on the right who at least think the Holy Spirit's relevant to every event in their life, but don't individualize it. Don't treat it like some special revelation now that's... Beyond uh, beyond the scripture, go to the scripture. This person's saying, "I'm just going to treat providence like you know. Let's just let's just be conventional in my wisdom with providence to make decisions." This person and believe that God's amount. No, you need the scripture every time. This person is going to ex- trust emotions and passions and feelings and experiences, and they need the scripture every time. That's the point I'm making. Part one, number two, verses thirteen, sixteen, and twenty-three we see the Holy Spirit or the Spirit-filled power. What's very interesting in this section is how all three people who are saved are people that you could readily discern as unsavable. You have Lydia, who's got it all together. A very powerful, industrious, globalist woman who has a huge household, which means that she has many people working for her. And this woman's got it all. She's one of the core group members that gets saved in Philippi. Then you've got another guy. This is Mr. Party Man. He's the Roman centurion. He's also got a big entourage of people in his household. But he's all government. You know, he's the bureaucrat. And his identity is, I'm an American. That's his passion. And then you've got a slave, a bond slave, a poor and oppressed. Someone not only physically and socially and culturally oppressed, but someone who is, we're told, demon possessed. And the Holy Spirit's power was powerful unto salvation for all three. And what an incredible core group they got started there. In prayer and supplication. You see, and not only that, we see great and miraculous events, don't we? We see a salvation wherein even Paul and his great, you know, release from prison was not something that he, it's very carefully crafted so that it's not according to conventional wisdom that Paul gets it. Did you notice that? We're going to turn that in a minute. But how Paul gets it is by rejecting the conventional wisdom of claiming his rights. I have rights as a citizen of Rome to a trial. You can't imprison me until I get one. That was the law of the land. They had broken it. <laughs> in fact, the, the governor comes crawling back. The magistrate comes crawling. Oh man, I'm in big trouble. Come on, get out of here. Uh-uh, I'm not leaving. I'm not going to leave. I got work to do in this prison. Keep me in, in, enslaved. Ah! <laughs> God wants me out of here, he'll get me out of here. And boy, did he do it. And he did it with great signs and wonders to be sure in order that the gospel might be proclaimed to the whole centurion guard there and that family and everybody. Do you believe in the power of God, really? I mean, your neighbor is absolutely freaking no match for the Holy Spirit. If you believe that, get some boldness. Start talking, start networking, start those are gross words. You know what I'm talking about. Communing, neighboring, hospitalitying. Doing those things that invite them into the presence of Christ. Even invite them to a church that's long. Service, you know? It, it can work. It did for many of you here. We've got to start believing in the power of God again. It's real. It's happening. I have a lot more, but we're going to go to the third one. This third one is, is related to, to the communal power. It's interesting, isn't it, that, that the whole scene is them going to a place of prayer, talking about the temple. We kind of forget about that, this whole event happening around the temple. That the conversion of Acts 2, remember, what must I do to be saved? He says, be baptized. You and all your household. He quotes Genesis, simply 15, where it's the, uh, you know, the circumcision uh, institution for you and all of your household, etc. It's very clear. This is a continuation of household baptisms. We'll get to that. But the key thing here is that what's happening here is happening in Acts 2, is happening throughout the you know, redemptive history to be spirit-filled is to recognize the location of the Spirit's presence is most in its epicenter form and in, in, with, and through the church. There's a baptism event, which is entrance into the temple church of God. It's, it's interesting that, again, I've mentioned it earlier, every Pentecost, there's three, remember? Every Pentecost uh, have this baptismal event. And every Pentecost, except for the last one, which again is where we are still, so it's not over, is summarized in the words like this. For instance, so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit was multiplying. That's how the works of the Holy Spirit gets gets summarized. That's when you know the Holy Spirit is happening. And it's fullness in the spirit. You see it over and over again. You see instructions like I said. Of appointing elders for them in every church. With prayer and fasting. That's organization guys. We hear them gathering the church together. A door of faith. This church. A door. Described a door of faith to the nations. In quote, Acts 14.27. And again in chapter 16.5. We heard it today. And the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. Do you think that was accidental? Now that you've heard Acts very carefully choreographed to coincide with redemptive history? No. The Shekinah glory, the filling of the Holy Spirit in the temple presence of God. Third, it's the spirit-filled warfare. Or suffering. This is maybe one that I need to slow down in, but I can't. But one of the evidences and signs, you see it everywhere, of the Holy Spirit is a people who are willing to make decisions not by counting the cost, if you mean by that, considering the degree to which it will cause you to suffer. i said that in a long way. Let me try to say it simpler. What you see here in this passage, if you'll notice, is how it is that Paul made decisions not based on immediate gratification. In fact, he not only didn't make decisions in order to avoid persecution, he actually at times embraced it. As he'll describe in Philippians, the same letter written to this group. We've been doing that for, year, for this last year, where Paul will say things like, You know, I, I pray that I might share in the sufferings of Christ. You're not spirit filled. I don't see it in Scripture anywhere. I wish I had the time to prove this to you. But you're just not spirit-filled if your decisions are being made for yourself or for the church with the condition that I want life to go easy for me. With 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 the idea of I want to accommodate as much as I can to the world so that they'll like me. And oh, I'm going to do it for the sake of the gospel. That's bull. We are alien residents here. While we want to be winsome and humble and reverent to the world and to God, etc., and humble, what you see is this amazing pattern, and in, in, in all through the Scripture, of course, in the Gospels and in Acts, but the pattern we're suffering, where the church, willing to suffer for the Gospel, is the very witness that builds the church. It authenticates the power of the gospel. You know, I'm going to be really, really honest here. If there is one of the four that I worry about the most for us, and I'm putting me in there, it's this one. If you have become materially successful, or you have become politically successful, or you have become academically successful, there's a reason why in Scripture there are these little phrases like it's more difficult for the rich. And you can define rich in any one of those four ways. It's more difficult for the rich. You see it in the Gospels, you see it in James, you see it in 1 John, it goes on and on. You see the rebuke to the rich church in, in Revelations. And the reason why it's more difficult, I think, it is because we, we have learned how to be man-pleasers, to get there. We've learned how to accommodate. We've learned how to work and to be a a, a dutiful member of the system, of the party, of the whatever. And there's this incredible temptation for us to then import that. That's the secular version of being spilled in the Holy Spirit. And to think that we're serving the Holy Spirit to be less bold, to believe less in the power of the gospel, to be less committed, whatever it is, because I'm earning somehow the right to share with them the gospel. I mean, there's, a, there's, there's so many stories here, but I'll never forget, and, well, I don't, I don't know if I should share, but I really, you know, when I was, first was a Christian, I became a Christian right before I went to college, was a member of a fraternity, and I decided I wasn't going to drink, you know, through the whole period of, of my college experience, and God, by His grace, gave me the ability to do that. And, you know, so I got labels of Jesus, you know, I forgot the word, Jesus, something Jesus, I forgot what it was. I tried to be fun, I'd go out and have parties and dance and stuff like that, but but it was just very clear that I'm not the guy to ask to go out and party and stuff like that, as, many, as well as there's others. I'll never forget, when, before I graduated, when a guy named M.D., I'll just call him that, um, came up to me and said, can I talk to you? This was the party leader. He was the social chairman. This is the guy that blessed us with Budweiser horses in our front lawn, okay? I mean, this guy was cool. And uh, he came up and said, you know, Preston, I will never forget you. It wasn't me. He says, because one day I might want to become a Christian. And by the way I've seen you, a guy that used to be quite social, be willing not to be the social guy, it makes me think that maybe there's something real there. And I'm still praying for MD. But I'm telling you, you are wrong. If you think the power of the gospel is going to come by your accommodating to everybody, you see it everywhere. This amazing power where God manifests the authenticity of the gospel by means of Paul and the church's willingness to suffer. It should never be an issue of your decision will it cause me to suffer? I think I can say that. It should be a decision what would be a faithful response to Jesus Christ and his providence according to scripture? And just do it. And trust God with your family, with your life, with your church. I'm trusting Him right now, talking to you like this. <laughs> you know, just say it, do it. We've got people like that. Look, how do you make your decisions? How do you make decisions if you're an elder for this church? Are you putting yourself and your sacrifice in, 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 this, in this little box? Oh, us don't do this because it might cause me to sacrifice? Are you putting this in the life of the congregation? that well, it might cause them to sacrifice or suffer? As much as that sounds compassionate and kindly, I don't see Paul doing that. Now, don't be wrong, We're not looking to suffer. I'm not trying to be an idiot so I can suffer. There's two kinds of suffering. You know, the kind when you're being an idiot and the kind that you really are following Christ but we need to be willing to follow Christ. So let me close this. It's been a long sermon. I knew it would be. So Walter Brueggemann kind of closes it this way. He says, after the wait, with the power of the Father, the church became unleashed into the world with incredible energy and authority. It is unrestrained by the authorities it encountered. It was unimpeded By imprisonments and stonings and being left out to death, and its impact was to turn the world upside down. I'll insert into that heaven to earth. If you could just ask yourself a few questions then. Do you believe in the wisdom and the power and the community? and the suffering even of the Holy Spirit. What does it mean to be Spirit-filled? However it is defined, it is, doesn't include actively seeking after the wisdom of God versus worldly convention. wisdom. It does include seeking after the wisdom of God versus worldly conventional wisdom by a devoted and consistent study of Scripture applied to providence. And if it doesn't live life in expectation of God's power unto salvation of those even that have been judged to be, quote, unsavable and circumstances unredeemable, as then to have an emboldened witness for the gospel in our lives, it's not a spirit-filled life. And if it doesn't include in a deep passion and devotion to the local communal, sacramental, and confessional church of Jesus Christ as the very epicenter of God's Holy Spirit presence and mission, it's not to be spirit-filled. And if it doesn't produce in you a willingness, even a conviction, to suffer all things for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ as being mediated through the spirit glory that descended upon the church, then it is not to be spirit-filled. Just take it from him who died for us. Let us pray.